Our text this morning is Joel chapter 2. These are the words of God. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there hath not been ever, like, ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained, all faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men, they shall climb the wall like men of war, and they shall march every one on his way, and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another, they shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city, they shall run upon the wall, they shall climb up upon the houses, they shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is thy God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from, your, from you the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate, with his face toward the east sea, and his hinder part toward the utmost sea. And his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done these great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, and cankerworm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God. 
that hath dealt, dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you do the miracle of preaching by speaking through your word to your people. So give us ears to hear what your spirit says to us. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray, and amen. As A.W. Tozer once said, if revival is just getting more of what we already have, then we most certainly do not need a revival. But indeed, when we look at our current moment, we are in dire need of revival. We just don't need more of what we already have. We need power from on high. We need the Spirit outpoured. Evangelicals need to be born again. The Pentecostals need to be Spirit-filled. The Reformed themselves need a Reformation. The Methodists need a Great Awakening. The Roman Catholics need to gain a healthy shot of Catholicism. Joel, what Joel lays out for us here in this text is what such a heaven-born revival consists of and what God's people should do to ready for it, and then the consequences of indifference towards the coming day of the Lord. So if you, if you recall from last week, the, the, the prophet Joel is addressing this great tragedy that has befallen uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, and that of a plague of locusts that has completely devastated the land. Uh, and to such an extent that it's going to take years and years for the vines to regrow, for the grain, the, the crops to, to be rebuilt, the flocks to be restored. And now the, the pith of it, Joel points out, was that as a result of this tragedy that came from the Lord's hand, the result was that the meat and the drink offering was cut off, and therefore right orderly worship unto the Lord was cut off in the temple. And he rebukes the people for their indifference to this great tragedy that had befallen them. The great sin of the day that Joel is addressing is that of indifference. So after his imploring the priests and the people to mourn and fast, back in verse 14 of chapter 1, to, to fast and mourn in response to the locust swarms devastating the land, which cut off the ingredients for the meat and the drink offerings, Joel then invites his audience to look through the locust plague and discern the cosmic implications of what this tragedy foretold, what this tragedy was a portent of. Now, remember I said last week that this tragedy ought not to just be viewed as Joel saying, this was a bad thing that happened, let me make it a sermon illustration. Rather, he says, this tragedy came from the Lord's hand. It was God that cut off the offerings. It was God by his hand that this devastation came in order to wake us up, in order to stir up the complacent and the indifference. 
But now what Joel wants to do is look at the tragedy before them and look through it, see through it, the bigger implications, the cosmic implications, what this tragedy foretells. In this chapter, there's a sort of a rough sketch of it. There are two trumpet blasts that uh, sort of frame and, and set the tone for this chapter. There in verse 1, and then again in verse 15, there are two trumpet blasts. The first one describes the day of the Lord as a marauding army, taking its imagery from the locust plagues. The day of the Lord comes as a marauding army, and the, then he, he gives the right response to the news of this tragedy that is coming, this army that's going to invade, and he gives the right response to it. So the first trumpet blast is a warning that an army is coming, and they should ready themselves. How should they ready themselves? But then the second trumpet blast has basically the reverse order of that. The second trumpet blast describes how a contrite people will enjoy the relenting of God, the mercy of God, the repentance of God. And they will experience the day not as one of horror and devastation, but as a day of blessing, a day of the Spirit being outpoured, a day of great wonder and amazement. So the day of the Lord is first described as a day of horror, and thus an appeal to repent is made. But then for those who repent, the day of the Lord is described as a great deliverance. And so it's like this double vision that we need to see this day of the Lord as. For those that believe, for those that repent, for those that turn, it will be a day of great deliverance. For those who do not repent, for those who remain obstinate and indifferent, it will be a day of great horror. So as we walk through this text, the warning trumpet is to be sounded, for the day of the Lord is near, there in verse 1. This is, we could put it this way, this is Helm's Deep. In the, of the Old Testament. It is a day of unrivaled darkness. The enemy is coming and there is no escape. There in verse 2. Eden is going to turn into Mordor and none can escape. There in verse 3. You're like, Mordor is in the Bible? The imagery. The locust swarms give way to an invading army. So the locust swarms turn into, in Joel's vision, he's taking it, looking at the locust plague and saying, this is going to be as the, the army that is coming. This army will be swift as horses, determined and well-armored, fierce and fearful, disciplined and indefatigable, tireless. They move with remarkable coordination and are not deterred by pain. And this invasion will be total, leaving no place to hide. Verses uh, four through nine. And these events will be earth-shaking. They'll shake the earth and throw the heavens into turbulence. There in verse 10. This is the Lord's army. Verse 11 tells us that the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. So this army that is coming to bring destruction upon Judah and Jerusalem is God's army, even if they be a foreign nation. This is the Lord's army, and they have come at his command. And so the prophet closes this description of the coming day of the Lord with the rhetorical question, who can abide it? If this be the fierceness of God's wrath, if this be the judgment that is coming, if this be the great day of the Lord that is coming, that is one of bleakness and darkness, of an army that can't be turned aside, of an army that can fall on its sword and not be harmed, who can abide it? And then we have the Lord speaking to his people. 
The Lord himself then speaks to the people to describe the right response to the news of this coming day of judgment. What he tells them, turn to me. This returning of the people, this people, the people turning back to God is to be entire, it is to be heartfelt, it is to be accompanied with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Unless they think they can just go through the motions of mourning, he admonishes them to rend their hearts and not their garments, there in verse 13. You can think of all the, the descriptions throughout the Old Testament of the many kings who received uh, bad news, who received words of judgment from the prophets, and would oftentimes rend their garments. And in many instances, it was a, the good and right response was to rend their garments, a sign of great uh, faith and mourning and saying, this is, if this be, the only way to, to avoid this is to cry out to God. But the warning here is don't just go through the motions. Don't just look like you're mourning. Don't just look like you have done the, the right response to the, this news. Don't just rend your garments. Rend your hearts. Turn your hearts. This repentance, of course, is to be founded upon God's covenant mercies. There in verse 13, we hear an echo of what God told Moses. Do you remember when Moses asked to see God's glory on Mount Sinai, and God covered him with his hand and let him see the, the back parts of God's glory, and God announced to him, and this is echoes of what God declared to Moses, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. So all this repentance is to be founded upon what God has revealed about himself, that he is a God who is gracious. He's a God who is merciful, slow to anger. These repentant sinners hope for a repentant God. But should God relent from his wrath and leave the blessing of the restoration of the meat and drink offerings? If God does this, if God turns, if from our perspective God changes his mind, it will be purely from his great mercy. This is all God's kindness to them. Even the revelation of the, the day of judgment, the day of tragedy, his revelation of it is itself a great mercy. So then the second trumpet blast sounds. All the residents of Zion... The elders, the infants, the children, the bridegroom and his bride are summoned to a solemn assembly, hearkening back to the previous chapter as well. And Joel paints, he says, gather all the people, from the least to the greatest, from the youngest to the oldest, from the, 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 the recently married, no excuses, all need to join in this repentance. And he paints this, this touching picture of what the repentance should look like, the priests and the people in the temple courts with the priests between the porch and the altar. And so if you remember your, uh, the, the, the floor plan of the temple, you'd have the Holy of Holies and then the inner court and then the outer court where the people would, would be. And so the priests are on, this, uh, on the stairs of the temple facing the Holy of Holies, crying out to the Lord with the people behind them. So the, the intercessors are there, the mediators are there, and the people are all gathered. And what the priests are to cry out is this wonderful, beautiful prayer Spare thy people, O Lord. If Judah responds this way, if Judah responds with this sort of total repentance, 
down to the floor, up to the ceiling, repentance. The result will be God's aroused jealousy and pity. God's jealousy would be aroused. His desire to defend his own name and his own people would be aroused. And what follows, as we look at the, 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 the verses between there, as, his, as God moves to act to restore the land, it's a restoration of all the Deuteronomic blessings, bountiful crops, the reproach of the people lifted, the rain falling down, the, the vine being restored, the fig tree yielding their fruit. The reproach is lifted, and the invaders will be driven back there in verses 19 and 20. The land shall be refreshed, and all which the locust had eaten would be restored. Where it looked like complete devastation had left the land uh, desolate and ruined, God promises that this repentance would result in an even greater blessing. The people would come to once more enjoy the Sabbath rest of the promised land and offer thankful praise without shame, all so that it might be known that the Lord is in their midst. And you'll notice that move that the prophets often do is that God's restoration, God's healing of his people, God forgiving their sins, God bringing them back from their exiles is always framed with him saying something along these lines in verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed. In other words, God does all this so that his name would be magnified, so his name would be glorified and lifted up, so that through all this tragedy, through the restoration, that the Lord's name would be praised. And after these things, after all this, the Spirit of God will be poured out upon all the people, verses 28 through 29. The cosmos themselves would reverberate to this radical turning of the redemptive tides. Verses 30 and 31. The repentant people, being restored to communion with God, are assured that the Lord shall ever be their deliverer, and any who call on him shall enjoy this salvation. One of the key things to do as we look at a prophecy like this, or as we look at how the prophets, um, how they go about their business, how they go about declaring these things, one of the key tactics that they use is how they look through current events. The immediate tragedy here in this book is obviously the, the swarming insects, which was just a forerunner of a greater day of judgment which awaited. Think of it as standing on a, atop a high hill and being able to see to the next ridge. But beyond that, there's a higher mountain beyond it. And then even beyond that, further still, is a snow-capped peak. And you can see all three, the ridge, the higher hill, and the snow-capped peak. You can see them all at once, but they're not all the same uh, level of proximity. Joel had rebuked the people for failing to respond appropriately to the locust swarm. That's the first ridge. They had been indifferent when the, the locust swarms had eaten all the crops. And they didn't, they didn't connect the dots between the crops had failed and therefore the, the worship in the temple would have failed. That's the first ridge. But then he employs the locust as a portent of coming invaders, uh, and that's the higher ridge beyond it. But then the prophecy concludes with a messianic crescendo foretelling the downfall of all God's enemies. 
and Zion enjoying his blessed reign. And that's the snow-capped peaks beyond. And so we need to learn to look at these texts in the same manner. See each of the ridges and, and valleys. So the people ought to have responded to the locusts with full-throttled repentance. They ought to have not needed a summons to come and mourn the, the cutting off of the meat and drink offerings. But in order to stir them up to this, Joel warns that an army fiercer than the swarms of locusts that they just endured will soon invade. And I think what, what Joel has in mind is likely the Assyrians. So uh, the, the Assyrians came in and they conquered the land of Israel, the northern kingdom, and took them captive. Uh, but then they also went on a campaign to surround Judah and Jerusalem. And in the day of Hezekiah, God brought about a great deliverance from the Assyrians. And I think that's what's likely in, in view here is the, the, the soon coming of the Assyrian armies, who were the superpower at the time. And so Joel is warning that there's, yes, the locust swarms were a terrible devastation that was brought, a terrible tragedy that befell us, but something even worse is looming. And if you don't learn your lesson with this uh, fairly minor tragedy, how will you stand? Who can abide when the day of the Lord comes, this even greater day of the Lord? But looming behind the, the more close a threat of the Assyrian invasion. Looming behind this is an even greater capital D, day of the Lord, which will be experienced one of two ways, either great blessing or great ruin. And all of it hinges on the sort of repentance which fills the people. Is it heaven-born sorrow, which God alone gives, or just earthly sorrow? Is it just being bummed out that bad things have happened? Or have their hearts been torn? Have they mourned? Have they come and gathered and said, God, will you relent? God, will you stop? God, will you turn back as we turn back to you? You see, what oftentimes happens in both in Old Testament times and in our own throughout history, the people of God often mistake innovation for repentance. We think if we come up with some new way to do things, some innovation can make it look like we've made progress. Everybody's always about progress. But if you're going down the wrong road, as C.S. Lewis once said, that's not progress. And progress would look like going back to where you took the wrong path and starting afresh. That's what true progress would look like. But just because we've made some innovations culturally, like the fact that uh, we, we record our sermons and we post them on the internet and before you know it, people in Australia and Indonesia and uh, Taiwan, all around the world, can watch what we're doing here uh, sometime later this week. The, the, these innovations that take place are remarkable gifts. But just because we've made these innovations and progress societally doesn't mean that we've repented. Repentance is a returning. Notice that. He says, turn to me. Don't innovate. Don't try to come up with, maybe the Lord will be pleased if we do X, Y, Z. The answer is, turn to him. Return to God. Repentance is a returning. Returning to what God told you to do. Returning to God's word. 
our modern debates within Christendom center, as they always do, without fail, whenever there's some controversy in the church, it always bakes down to what the serpent said to Eve in the garden. Did God say? It always comes down to the authority of God's word. Will you turn to what he said? Will you turn to what he told you to do? Will you return to how he told you to live? Or will you go about business as usual, innovating new ways to look spiritual, to look religious, to invent new sins, to invent new crimes, to invent new uh, righteousness? It's all just innovation, not repentance. And the rejection of God's word as the standard for justice in our current moment in favor of embracing, whether it be Marxist or humanist or feminist definitions of justice, indicates that we are not truly interested in righting wrongs. Regardless of all the propaganda, our generation is not interested in righting wrongs. We're interested in perpetuating our wrongs, making them look more righteous. Those loudly ringing the bells of social justice are offering a semblance of repentance, but it is mere innovation. The proposals to give minority families 500 bucks a month of taxpayer dollars might seem a noble way to right past wrongs. But is socialism true justice? Is thieving from your great-grandchildren justice? It's interesting, I heard somebody commenting recently on the abortion debate saying, you know, most Americans agree that abortion should be illegal after the first trimester. So what if we just said, hey, we all agree on this, let's just stop there. Let's start, you know, say, pass a law, abortions are illegal after the first trimester. And I can envision a future where that happens. And we all think we have done a good thing. We have accomplished our ends. We have repented as a society. So if we were to pass a law that is based on our national consensus, have we repented? Have we truly repented of the evil of the slaughtering of the unborn? It may be an innovation. It may be some sort of improvement. It may look like progress. But all these sorts of things are mere innovations. It is not reformation. If it were, if it were a revival, it would look like a humble return to God's word. Now, this text before us is the text that the apostle Peter went to in Acts 2.17 on the day of Pentecost, when the, the Spirit of God fell and they began speaking in, in tongues and pr uh, preaching in the, in, this, in the city. And the people came and said, these men are filled with new wine and they're asking what the heck is going on. And the Apostle Peter says, Joel 2. Let me open it up. Let me explain to you what's happening here on this day of Pentecost. Peter insists that what Joel had prophesied had come to pass in this marvelous outpouring of the Spirit 50 days after Jesus' death. Pentecost wasn't innovation. This was a return to what God had promised he would do when the Messiah came. Peter doesn't say, we're doing something new now. We're casting aside all the, the Old Testament. We're unhitching the New Testament from the Old. He says, we're returning to what Joel said would happen. It was a return to what God had promised would happen when the Messiah came. Consequently, Peter informs us how to read Joel. And this is just an important Bible study tool for you. As you read the New Testament, look at all those footnotes that are oftentimes in your Bible that point back to the Old Testament references. 
It's the apostles telling you how to read the Old Testament. They're giving you a cheat code to how to read the Old Testament. Peter says, here's how you should read Joel. The day, the capital D, day of the Lord, has come. God's compassion is the, is the rock-solid foundation for Joel's vision of the future blessing of the outpoured spirit. It is his graciousness, his mercy, his being slow to anger that forms the bedrock for the fact that they would soon, the people of God, from the least of them to the greatest, from upon all flesh, upon the handmaids, upon the young men, upon the old men, upon the servants and the handmaids, that God's spirit will be poured out upon all his people. It's his mercy that would form the basis for this great blessing. An army of destruction is coming, but those whom God mercifully humbles and brings to repentance, the first the, the repentance being the first fruits of the outpouring of the Spirit. Those who turn, those who repent, those whom God humbles, those whom God humbles in his mercy, they will enjoy a deliverance. And so on the day of Pentecost, when the fire fell, it now empowered a nation of priests for prophetic service in a new temple, the church. So it's interesting, in Numbers chapter 11, we have this interesting story. The people are complaining, as they oftentimes did in the wilderness, about food, not having enough food. And Moses turns to God and says, how am I supposed to bear the weight of leading all these people, of, of helping these people, of leading these people? And there in Numbers 11, God tells him what to do. He says, gather unto me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest, uh, to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them under the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And here's the key, key line, and I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself. And then he goes on to describe what they need to do to prepare for this this. Um, ceremony, as it were. And so then Moses goes and does it there in verse 24. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the, of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. Now, in, in sort of extra-biblical um, discussions of this text, there are uh, some of the, the Hebrew commentators, the Jewish commentators, describe this as being a torch coming down and splitting off and landing upon the heads of these 70 elders. Hmm, what does that sound like? Sounds an awful lot like what happens then in Acts 2 when the day of Pentecost comes upon the disciples. Now, there's some controversy that erupts immediately. After this, this, this takes place, the, the fire falls upon these elders to empower them to lead the nation, uh, to go out from the tabernacle and lead the nation rightly, to bear the burden of leading the people. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other, Medad, of course. And the spirit rested upon them. Uh-oh, is this allowed? And they were of them that were written, but they were not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man. It's always the young men. 
and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad, do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. Good Joshua, good godly Joshua says, Moses, tell these two men to stop. Tell them to stop their prophesying. They weren't here. They were not a part of this, as it were. And Moses said unto him, Enviest thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. The fire fell on that day of Pentecost. It empowered a nation of priests for prophetic service in a new temple. And that's what chapter 3 of Joel goes on to describe, is this great um, invasion, as it were, of the world by these whom, upon whom the Spirit fell. An invasion of the nations. So Peter tells us that the day of Pentecost was the day of the Lord. It commenced with this outpouring of the Spirit, and it culminated in the Romans' destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. What Joel's vision is, here at the end of Joel 2, is a vision of a prophetic people. The Spirit poured out upon them, and all the people prophesying. To quote Spurgeon, unless we have the Spirit of prophecy resting upon us, The mantle which we wear is nothing but a rough garment to deceive. We need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to embolden us to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 10, quotes Joel, this passage. And Paul says this, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When the Spirit comes, when the Spirit was poured out, what will be the proclamation? The Spirit emboldens his people to proclaim a very simple thing, a very clear message. Jesus is Lord. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When the Spirit applies what Christ purchased, the result is a new heart, a heart assured that sin is forgiven. And this promise, as Peter said on the day of Pentecost, this promise is for us and our children. Notice that Joel's psalm assembly of repentance includes the child on the breast, as well as the most learned of elders. All of them are to receive the Spirit's clarity. The reference to dreaming dreams. Dreams in the Old Testament are indicative of clarity, seeing things clearly, seeing what God's purposes are. And men of God are given the Spirit in the Old Testament to see the dreams clearly and speak their meaning plainly. Think of Joseph with with Pharaoh, hearing the dream and saying what its meaning was plainly. The Spirit comes upon us, and we walk in clarity. We walk in the clear light of day. It's what John says in 1 John 1, 7. We walk in the light as he is in the light. So when the Spirit falls, when we respond in repentance, when God humbles us to repent and turn and return to his word, what happens? We are made bold. We are given clarity. We are able to prophesy, proclaim Understand that to be the the clear proclamation of this message. The message that we preach is Jesus is Lord. 
Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be delivered. This day of the Lord need not be experienced as a day of horror, but as one of great deliverance. You see, when the Spirit comes upon a mom who is no longer riddled with the shame of her sins, who enjoys the forgiveness of God, she will be bold to teach her children to follow Christ. The Spirit applies what Christ has purchased. And as such, in the knowledge that our sins are forgiven, we can boldly and plainly tell those in our life, Jesus is Lord. A formerly resentful teen will no longer cower before his peers. A businessman whose confidence is in Christ's work and not his own will freely speak up about Jesus in his workplace. And this is because the Spirit gives boldness. Let's pray. Our God and Father, with the hymn writer we say, Come then, O house of Jacob, come to worship at his shrine, and walking in the light of God with holy beauties shine. You have sent forth your Spirit to give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. So grant us that boldness of Pentecost, the boldness which comes because you have delivered us from the invading armies, though they be as fierce as a plague of locusts. You have relented from damning us because you have given us repentance, and you have restored us to the promised land. We give thanks for all this and offer back to you the words which Jesus taught us to pray, saying, From Psalm 130, If you were to judge, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Horatius Benar in his book, God's Way of Peace, concludes that in all unbelief there are two things, a good opinion of oneself and a bad opinion of God. In the former, we tend to think of ourselves as worthy or at least capable of being worthy. In the latter, we fail to believe, really believe that God is all-powerful, gracious, and good. The psalmist, in his short passage, nails both these errors. Our very best works, religious or otherwise, are like filthy rags, and we bring them with polluted hands in polluted vessels. So who can stand? And not being obedient to what God has plainly said because we neither fear nor trust Him is the height of unbelief and the reason for our troubles. Well, as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we can analyze our beliefs about yourself and God. Does your life reflect a wellspring of gratitude based on the full measure of God's grace and forgiving you and saving you? Does your heart overflow with grace and forgiveness for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Does your heart yearn to show double honor to those within God's family? Do you desire to share this good news with your neighbors and your co-workers? Well, the gospel is not one and done. With open eyes and the light of Christ, we are called to reflect the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in everything we say and do. Well, practically, as more and more people from different church backgrounds come and join our ranks, we want to guard ourselves from disputes and tribalism and sectarianism. Our unity is not based on pastoral leader, which service we attend, or even which church we attend. As we grow in number and divide into smaller groups, we don't want to sound like the Corinthians boasting of being in the camp of Paul or Apollos. Our unity, cliche as it may sound, is only possible if we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's our only Lord, our only captain. Look and listen for his commands. So may God grant that our reputation is marked by astonishment about how we love one another, our brothers and sisters, here, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. 
This meal is a symbol of the death of Jesus that brought you life, life eternal. In faith, you've received the spirit of Jesus and all of his life, all of his kingdom, and we are all joint heirs. He meets us here to confirm that we are one with him and is one and one body in this meal. So come to the table. Let's pray. O Lord God, our Heavenly Father, you are the gift giver. We are the ones receiving your goodness and grace. You understand our frame. You know that we are but dust, and so you have given us a tangible symbol to strengthen our understanding. You call us to eat and drink together so that we see your body surrounding us. Just like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, we are made one in you. We are seated in the heavenly places with you. And as we take this meal together, we can see the reality of your promise of a hundredfold blessings on every side. You provide for us bread and wine to picture the instrument of your covenant in the death of Jesus and to see with eyes of faith your presence in this meal. Lord, strengthen us with this sacrament so that we may offer ourselves freely for your service, for we ask it in Jesus' name. And amen. As Ben shared in his message, we are a prophetic people. We are prophetic people because we have the Spirit of God. And the Apostle Paul says, as a command, to be filled with the Spirit. So we have the Spirit, but we also need to be filled with the Spirit to have the power to do all the things that Ben was talking about in his message, to be bold, to be, to be loving, to do all the things that uh, we see in the commands of Christ. But to be filled, we want to be, uh, what Paul says, uh, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And uh, so when we don't find ourselves doing that, confess that, and be, come back to say, God, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Fill me that I might live out a prophetic life, glorifying your name boldly in this world. With that, receive now the benediction of Christ. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forevermore. And amen. Amen.